You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we three white guys will be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. Thanks for that, Matt. <coughs> what, for introducing myself? <coughs> no, for, point it, for pointing out that we're, we're three white guys about to talk about one of the most racially charged episodes of Doctor Who ever made. <laughs> well, you say that, but then go back to the Aztecs. Okay. Well, okay. All right. Cards on the table. I was just going to sit here and talk about the mechanics of a Doctor Who episode, and I was going to leave the. I wasn't going to not address the issue, but I was pretty much. My plan was to only raise it insofar as it raises itself, and leave the issue for more educated voices than we to talk about, and just talk about whether the episode works. But you raised it just before well, the I mean, press release. This is the first. Doctor Who story that's about race well, rather than as a direct about the historical treatment of race. Well, the Aztecs was, in a way. But, yeah, but, but the point but I'm the making... In, the in a way bit is the thing that makes well, it... No, and also, it's... the Aztecs is about race not in living memory. Well, yes. I mean, but... Here's the point I'm making yeah. when I raise the Aztecs. We've said, or I've said in print... Chris Chibnall is going back to basics and doing season one of Doctor Who again, mm. to all intents and purposes. I mean, he's not literally doing season one of Doctor Who again. And what are the big historical stories from the start of Doctor Who in 1964? Marco Polo and the Aztecs. And if you look at what those two stories do, Marco Polo is the subcontinent adventure well, we know that in, what is it, three episodes' time, we've got a subcontinent adventure coming up. Okay, yeah. And the Aztecs is the race story. And what's this? The race story. Okay. So he's doing season one of Doctor Who with a 2018 sensibility. Okay. So I'm not saying this directly correlates to what happens in the Aztecs, but the Aztecs did address some of these issues. Not as on the nose as this one did, as we'll obviously go into. I was going to say, yeah, on the nose is a good phrase. I was going to say on target, but yes. This was right on the nose. Mm. But the Aztecs definitely brought some of those things up. And I think he's just... I don't think he's deliberately saying, right, let's redo the Aztecs and then let's redo Marco Polo. But I, I do think the parallels are there to be drawn. Uh, I mean, it's probably just coincidence that it's race and the subcontinent, but... That is what we have. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about less contentious things to start off with. I thought the music was a vast improvement this week. Oh, it was stunning. Up until that song at the end, it was stunning. Okay, we'll come to the song. <laughs> that's, a that's a taste thing. There were a couple of moments when he went to, into his rhythmic running down the street thing that I mm. think is a bit... Mm, but the rest of it, yeah, was great. Mm. Mm. I 
still didn't. I tried to. I tried to <laughs> notice it. I noticed it when she was running around the, the big oil cans. But equally, that means he's doing his job, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think be... that's. It's just not an issue. I really love the theme music now. Yes, the theme music and the title sequence. Oh, really? I'm. I, I, I'm more I, excited. I've, it it builds excitement up in me, like something no... hasn't done for quite a long time. It's not doing pre-titles. No, no, I quite no. like that though. I quite like the sort of crash into the yeah. Thing. It's back again. It's back to the start of the classic series, and isn't odd, it? Oddly, I'm also feeling. I'm feeling under. I'm not talking about this episode, but the last two episodes, I felt underwhelmed by the episodes, but I'm still really excited. Yeah. About the ideas of the episodes, and also, and there's something about even thinking back. There's something about the episodes I'm finding really exciting. At the same time as I'm finding them sort of slightly underwhelming, slightly, slightly missing or underwhelming, and I think that's just <clears throat> there's a general atmosphere I think to Doctor Who at the moment that I'm finding, and I think it's because it's slightly on the edge. That but I there's don't also know yeah, because also there's this thing where it's a new showrunner and we know he's got the weight of thirteen years and ten series of recent history to either draw upon or ignore, and we don't quite know what tone each episode's going to have from one week to the next. And one thing that has become apparent now is that they're all going to be slightly more earnest. There is still going to be a sense of humour, but that sense of humour is a lot... uh, a lot thinner, maybe, than it has been under Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat. So this is a Doctor Who that's not as... I don't know what the word is. Not as entertaining, I was going to say. But then, do you need it to be funny to be entertaining? This, was, is, this is Doctor yeah. it's, it's it's It hasn't been this sincere. Yeah, yeah. Ever. No, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't... I can't think of a of a Doctor Who that's been this, this kind of straight. Well, I... Yeah, I was going to say, well, obvious things like season 18 but actually that's not sincerity no that's no, just that's, dryness that's, yeah yeah and even then it was still you know this is doctor who with ideas and issues yeah. and even though this is the first one that's actually addressed an issue that head-on hmm. it's not like the first two episodes didn't have things that they sort of drew upon as well yeah so i mean for instance art malik last week yeah, there was, and the, with the the alien guy in the first one, and I know I said Trump, and you didn't necessarily no, like agree, that. Yeah. But with the alien guy in the first one, that's about somebody who cheats his way to the top. With Art Malik in the second one, that's about somebody who's been at the top so long that he just doesn't care about anybody else anymore. Mm. And then with this one, you've got the race thing. So there's definitely a theme threaded through the series, but, not necessarily of specifically Trump, but of but the modern concern about. Does the human race care about itself anymore? But bizarrely, what I was seeing wasn't, and in the the first two episodes, and in and in this one, even though this is about race, I didn't see any modern modern parallels. I know I know that there were there are touches on modern, but this is all about history. This is a story about history, and it seems to be really rooted in history. So this is one, probably one of the least political stories. Set, said in the past, there's no satire in it. There wasn't any, there wasn't any kind of metaphor or parallel. This was about keeping history on track. Well, yeah, and 
But then the history that you're keeping on track is still ongoing. But I don't. I didn't see that that addressed. Well, nobody says the story. I saw that. I saw once they fix history. I saw that as being history back on track. Yeah, but the guy. What's he called? Crank or Cracker or? Yeah, he's clearly a white supremacist from the Mm. from the far future. But even then, I didn't see that as being. I know, but wasn't there wasn't enough. He was quite, and I liked it about him, he was quite an empty character. He was just a, a white supremacist from the far future. And there wasn't any details given about him. There wasn't any, he wasn't I given thought... that much dialogue. And I think because of that, they've, they've actually, I don't think Chibnall, and Chibnall didn't write this, but I don't think Chibnall's Doctor Who is going to be as, as satirical, as kind of his, he sets things in history and they're very historical. But he doesn't have that parallels. kind of touch on. There are parallels, but not not like you would find with Stephen Moffat or Russell T Davis. Maybe, yeah. Where, but then, where but it's, then... it's basically putting modern ideas into an historical context. This is this is pure, and I know pure historical means something different. But, but you two, get this is you get yeah uh, Yaz and Ryan running a commentary on it by talking about what it means and what the yeah, importance is yeah. and then you get that scene at the end and but, you even get with oh, what was he called crank or something mm. he even says this is where it starts and he wants to stop it from continuing yeah but but the the companions yaz and uh, ryan ryan's sorry yaz and ryan's the way yaz and ryan were talking about it it's about their personal experience it's not yeah. about so it's all about that's about their characters being shaped. But you can draw the parallels with what you was could, the... well, you, I I'm not saying you can't draw the parallels. I'm saying that 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 Chibnall's that that Chib the Chibnall style stories aren't inviting the parallels as explicitly as they're not they've inviting them, them before. Well they might not be inviting them as explicitly, but he wouldn't put these things in if he wasn't inviting parallels at all. Uh, you don't yeah. you don't bring up an issue if you don't want people to talk about that issue, and in just bringing up the issue, you invite the parallels. But I think he was inviting the parallels as a way of building Yaz and Ryan's character. Well, I and, think there's a bit more to it, and about and about building and about displaying how alien the historical past is. Oh, but then so you were saying that the issue is not important. Park. No, I'm not saying that. Well, I'm I'm saying that he's not making a a link with the politics of today. He's he's making a point about the politics of then, using the personal experiences of today. You know, as there were several lines of dialogue in the episode that said this continues into our time. This yes, doesn't but, go away. But that's that's not. But that's, but that's inviting but that's not a parallel. Like a political satire. No, it's not that's, satire. That's there. They're not making a comment about. They're not making a big comment about the politics of today. No, but they're in um, I just make a point that today is the 50th anniversary, um, 50 years since the Black Power protest at the 1968 Olympics. Okay. Okay. So if you're saying there aren't any parallels, I think that's a fairly strong one. Well, they've well, done they've it on done... an anniversary of yeah. something. I'm just saying that I've been I... listening to Six Music today and it's, the whole day's been dedicated to that. Okay. So in the same way as Stephen Moffat would often time an episode on a particular day. But the day. civil rights movement had like a major event one a year between 1965. Okay, okay. And, well, yeah, so, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not saying what, that's definite. I'm just saying that that's a, 
a fairly what a, strong link. I'm I'm just saying that this episode was more about history yes. than it was about the present. And Doctor Who in the past has been showing history as being about the present, right? And so it was using the present as as a way of. So this episode was yeah. using details from people's personal experience in the present yes. as a way of building the history as an alien environment. Yes. In the past, it's using the history as a way of reflecting on the present. And I didn't think this was using history as a way of reflecting on the present. It's no. flipped it. And yeah, that's, why, that's why watching it, I had the feeling I was watching a Quantum Leap episode. Yes, yes. In, in the same way that Quantum Leap was never about... It was very rarely about things that were happening in the present. It was mm. all about embedding this character oh, I see. in the I see. alien past. Yeah, you were talking about the episode content, whereas yeah. whereas yeah. I was thinking, I mean, the, the, is is there a... the details? There are yeah. obviously there's obviously a race issue at the moment because of Trump. Yes, but I don't think I think in general the comments in the story were talking about well things are getting better in the present. Mm. We have to keep on. Yeah, making sure that, on, carries that carries on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a way of looking at history that things tend to improve, which is a kind of a fallacy, or it's it's often sort of argued against that history isn't isn't a stream of improvement well, going on. It's actually no, like it's... ups and downs. But and at the moment we're experiencing a, a down. But, and this episode wasn't really talking about that. It was talking about so there was one mention of Obama in the episode that actually felt quite dated, quite dated now. Mm. And it almost felt like that's that comment. Yeah, I was would, waiting for the comment be, afterwards to say yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. And that never came. And there was one comment about uh, Yaz being a police officer and you know, mm. I've got you know, I want to be in charge, so she's still got aspirations, but she's a police officer. Mm. So there was there were comments about, you know, it's still not right in the present, but it's getting there. And that, for me, that wasn't... And I don't, I'm, that's not a criticism of the episode. That's just me noticing that that this episode's doing something different from what we've seen in Doctor Who before. And equally, I was going to say that probably the most successful thing is I, I did get the emotional response at the end of it. And I'm not really... Apart from maybe a documentary or two. Yeah. That's because you like the song so much. Oh, yeah, I, I adored it. But what? Well, <laughs> but despite that, I had the emotional response at that point in the story. I thought it was Adele when it came on. I thought, why have they got Adele? That's horrendous faux pas. I thought it was overdoing it. <clears throat> I, it I thought. It was what they did in Vincent and the Doctor. <sighs> did they do the same thing? Pretty what? much. Did they have a song come on? In Vincent and the Doctor? Mm. Athlete. Oh yeah, it was wasn't. But it? not over the closing titles. No, we haven't. Had, we haven't had something happening over the closing titles since Hattrick died. For well, God's sake. yeah, but then <laughs> again, two weeks ago, you didn't have an opening title sequence at all. No, that's true. So they, well, the two things he's doing, and yeah, okay, what you've said about the way this treats history, we haven't seen under Russell T Davis or Stephen Moffat, no. but we did see it in nineteen sixty four. Because yeah. that essentially was how it treated history in 1964. So again, that parallel with going back to basics on Doctor Who. But Chris Chibnall then, uh, on the one hand, back to basics. And on the other hand, shake up the details so that people don't know quite maybe what to expect all the time. And going back to what we were saying, what you were saying just now about you're excited each week, even if it underwhelms, you're still excited about it. Because it's those uh, one of the... Th- 
factors is those little details that you're never quite sure what's going to... Well, I mean, I was excited about this week because I knew it was going to be about Rosa Parks and I knew it was going to be, I thought for them, it was going to be a tightrope, a really delicate tightrope to walk, to show basically the Doctor, who's, who's an alien, but she's a white woman, Graham, who's a white man, and Ryan and Yaz coming in and rescuing or putting history back on track to rescue Ro to sort of but to the inter- important intervene thing, in Rosa Parks. The important thing activity. was mm. they didn't nudge her no, into no. taking the step. No. Yeah. They just made sure the circumstances were right for it to happen. And that, and that was the tightrope. Yeah. And it, 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 it could the right have so easily been more quantum leapy, which would was would have been Sam Beckett mm. leaping mm. into a leaping into a black character, yeah, yeah. putting something right using his yeah, modern knowledge, yeah. mm. and then it goes back, and that's and that's really uncomfortable. Okay, <laughs> really, no, no, really I, yeah, I just I hope nobody argues the point that the conversation that Yaz has with her before was what influenced her because that wasn't the case. She yeah. was going to make that decision regardless. I mean, I've got, to... and she'd already made the decision yeah. without them being there. Yeah, well, we see we see two previous examples of her. Been on the edge of making that decision, so we're shown that she's arriving at that decision yeah. for herself. But obviously, yeah. that tightrope that I I was seeing the uh, Mallory Blackman walking made the episode more exciting, more exciting for me because I you felt, wondered which way I, it was going to go. I felt quite mm. a lot of adrenaline when I started watching yeah, it, yeah. and I felt uncomfortable, but in a way that I was supposed to feel uncomfortable. So I didn't enjoy watching this episode at all. I didn't have any moment of sort of Doctor Who. Yeah, this is great. You, no, no, this is Doctor no, Who. no. There was a real I, feeling of jeopardy. I felt distinctly, distinctly kind of antsy inside <laughs> but that's of a me. Metatextual jeopardy. No, no, the jeopardy but... isn't in will the fictional thing turn out all right? Because you knew it would. Mm. It but, was will the authors of the episode yeah, this, turn out all this right? Is, but this was mer- <sighs> this was merging as well with what I was seeing on screen. So, th- so the knowledge of of Doctor Who addressing quite a quite a politically charged issue. This is the week where Matt's not going to let anybody else. No, 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 no. But this is my this is my emotional reaction. So Doctor Who addressing a really politically charged issue in a way that needs a degree of sensitivity because it's it's using Doctor Who as a format to tell it, and Doctor Who as a format is is basically a silly sort of frivolous format. And that tightrope, but also seeing what I was seeing on screen, so the details about Alabama and the nasty white people in in Alabama, that sort of merged together. So my emotional reaction to it was exactly what I thought they were going for. Mm. I I have to say, as I was watching it, I wasn't doing my usual thing of thinking what's going on under the hood. Every Every now and again, I would think to myself, yeah, what's going on here? You know, what are the writers doing? And then I found myself getting caught up with it, you know, yeah. and, and actually getting carried along by the story and the subject matter. Mm. So I think in that respect, it's it was working incredibly well. Yeah. What I will say, and I don't say this to undermine it um, or to bring it down, but with the whole history lesson thing and actually what the Doctor was doing, I was watching what the Doctor was doing, is um, have you ever seen the Magic School Bus? No, I mean, I know, I know because you got a bus in there, but it was literally like 
the teacher was the doctor taking mm. this party, dropping them into history, walking around saying, right, what's going on here? Because the Magic School Bus was an animated series in America. Right. Really successful. They brought it back and it's quite a... It's quite a thing. It's almost like... Well, the bus goes to different points in history. Exactly. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Blue Peter or whatever mm. programme that we all know as children in America. It was this animated series. I, I guess it was the 80s or 90s initially. It was Bette Midler was the main character. Okay. And they would all get on this magic school bus and sometimes it would shrink down and go inside people's bodies and sometimes it would go back in history and it would... Okay. You know... So it was that. It was that, and I don't mean. I don't mean that to. No, I did to get, bring down, but it was. Like, I did get the feeling like I was watching schools programming exactly at times, yeah. and obviously I wasn't. I'm not a fan of that feeling because <laughs> I'm not in school. No, but I was thinking this is one of those episodes where you probably would show it to kids as being an important episode and a good way of, mm. of accessing recent and important history. And actually, More than you would show them the Shakespeare Code as a way of teaching them about Shakespeare. Yeah. In this country, is Rosa Parks as well known as she presumably is over there? Because I knew the name and I knew, I don't know, okay, let's exaggerate. I knew yeah. it was something to do with the bus, but I didn't know a great deal more than that. That might be to do with... The, the generation of education that we've had. So I don't know if kids today are getting it slightly more relevant. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe kids now are, but... And the, they did they did go through sort of narrative hoops in the story to to say how Graham knew of Rosa Parks. Yeah, and, yeah. And they went through narrative hoops to explain who Rosa Parks was. Yeah. With characters pitching in with what they knew. and I thought they did that stuff quite well. Yeah, I did. I thought the running around to get history back on track was a bit um, over much. Didn't think that quite worked. I think they're still running around explaining the plot. Yeah, and that it wasn't scene, quite as bad as last week. But that scene in the hotel room where they start writing the plot down on the wall. Yeah, yeah. That's kind well, of... yeah, yeah. But again, I... I but then this was the week this, when this you is... wanted to see the plot written down and... Because this was the education. Oh, they one. had to navigate. Yeah, yeah. What was going I, appre- on, didn't I appreciated they? it. Yeah. Um, but again, it had that school's, school's programming feel. But then I didn't know quite why Yaz was instructed and how she even would have found out when Rosa was taking all her breaks and stuff and she's writing all this stuff up on the board on the previous evening. All that stuff. She didn't need to know when she was taking her breaks. She just needed to know what time she was coming out the door, right? I guess so. Uh, so yeah. what I'm saying is all that stuff seemed just a little bit it's, too forced. It's kind of like kind of like Oliver Stone's JFK with this kind <clears throat> of looking at history and becoming obsessed by the details. So what the Doctor and her team do is kind of become so immersed in the history and we've, we're allowed that kind of view into the, into the history. But what I'm saying is it was the, the, run, the, the, the sequence where they run around making sure everything's going to be mm. as it's supposed to be. Yes. None of the jeopardy seemed quite jeopardy enough and none of the solutions seemed quite clever enough no. Such that that whole sort of five or ten minutes just felt a bit like people walking from A to B to C. And not an awful lot more, really. And, the, and they dispatched the villain a bit like the first episode. They dispatched him and you sort of expected him to come back at the last minute or something to I happen. I don't know if it was symbolic. Or, 
or for Ryan to get, but I thought Ryan might get told <clears throat> off for for doing something quite brutal, which was zapping him. Well, he didn't kill or, him. He just sent him back to the past. Yeah, despite I know, but the also the, the doctor away, didn't he? But the doctor did something with her Sonic, and I thought she'd sort of sneakily reset reset the gun so it went somewhere else. Mm. But no, he reset it because yeah, she pointed out where the. Um, I know, but I was expecting that to come back. I thought because she Sonic something and didn't explain what it was, and I think she, that was the overheating was finding thing out. or something like oh, that. Oh no, she did explain that. You must have missed it. What did she say? Um, oh, she didn't. The bit where she said she sonicked and she said, and there's something else. She said, I'll have to work out what it is. That was the... She did come back five minutes later and say it's the thing in his brain that doesn't yeah, allow him to okay, kill people. Okay. Oh, you must right, have just okay. missed that. I thought it was just she'd done something. No, no, no. It was to something his zappy gun. No, it was something it she was. It would zap him. Well, then that sonic is scanning all the time, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah, it was something it. she was finding out. Okay. Or something okay. she was doing. Um, but, I he, but he just sort of vanished. Yeah. But that, that meant that the story wasn't about him trying to upset history. The story was about history. It was an attempt at a pure historical. Well, it was about a white guy trying to do undo half a century and more of black progress. Except I don't think it was about about that because well, because he was such a low-key character yeah. who's got zapped. Well, you can say it wasn't about that, but that's there on the screen. So yeah. that might not be the central thrust of it, but that is... Mm one of the elements of that what was, makes up the story. It's one of the elements, but I think... And the, do the we central, know any white guys who are trying to undo half a century or more of black progress in power at the moment? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm just saying, Matt, there's just little nods to Trump in every single episode. Just if, little if you've nods. Got, if you've got an episode about a key event in the civil rights battle and you have something trying to work against it... But there then... was a nod last <laughs> week and a nod the week before. Just little tiny okay, nods. Okay, there, there hasn't been a nod to Trump until until now. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that. There hasn't been a nod to Trump. There hasn't well, been a Trump, okay, a I, Trump satire. What is it you I always say? I if you can see it, it's valid. No, I don't say that. I think with any art, you, you it's down to the perception of the viewer. You, we can if, all, you can you know, say, if you can convincingly make the case... Ah, I'm not. I'm not saying there definitely is. I'm just saying if that's what people take from it, that's what people take from it. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There are obvious things. I think this this episode is an obvious push towards that thing. It's it's more to do with the movement as opposed to Trump symbolizes a movement. I think it's a more general. I think it's a more general thing. And I think there was a symbolic thing of the guy being thrown into the past. Is is, that's where he belongs. But I think that's my point. Yeah, Um, by the black guy. That's my point. Is it's it's slightly more interesting than being just anti-Trump or anti. Just anti-Trump. It's about it's about universal. Universal things. The emotional response at the end of the episode was to do with what happened in that section of history. Yeah. That was me finding a connection with what happened and thinking, shit, that that is what it was all about and that is that is the battle. And and I've come out of it with an understanding that I didn't think I didn't have. Yeah. And now I now have a connection that I didn't know I didn't have. It's all very well me saying I'm not a racist. Yes. Yeah. But Unless you've got that emotional connection and the connection with the humans involved, it's just words. Mm. So I think it was an incredibly potent episode, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Without bringing it, trying to bring it to a standstill, but I... I didn't enjoy it. 
And actually, I thought it was slightly, slightly dated okay. the way they were doing it because, it, because yeah. it had that quantum leap. Okay, but here's a different question. If you didn't enjoy it, and this is what I usually start with, and we're about half an hour in or whatever, so let's do it now. Did you like it? Because that's a different question from did you enjoy it? Um, I appreciated it. I think enjoying and liking are the same, but appreciating it... I, no, I didn't think I enjoying it. and liking it. Well, no, I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy Requiem for a Dream, but bloody hell, I like it. It's a terrific film. So you were... Okay, so you appreciate it. Yeah, so you think like it's a good film. Much closer but... to appreciate, surely. Okay. Oh. And semantics. Okay, so I... Well, I, I can like... enjoy the X Factor, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't like, I didn't like this episode, but I think it's... I think it was an important... I yes. think it was an important episode, and I think it was... It's, it's a good... It's a good stamp for Chibnall to make in terms of what he's doing with Doctor Who. And I like the fact that, that Chibnall's doing something different and this... that he's putting his stamp on and his stamp happens to be this. Personally, I thought that, that it was actually slightly overdone and I thought it was slightly dated in the way it treats sort of big, big moments of history. Um and because it reminded me of Quantum Leap and there was that kind of 90s, 80s, 90s sort of earnestness about it, that that for me, that's that's not the way to get big issues for me to hit home with me. You doing it ironically and doing it slightly more subversively is the way to, to get it through to me. Well, I agree. I think audiences tend to turn off if they're being lectured. Yeah. And I think this... Got mighty close to it, but just managed to be fun enough and Doctor Who enough that it didn't tip over into lecturing. Mm. I thought it trod that line pretty carefully and just about came down on the right side of it as well. I think the thing that saved it was Jodie Whittaker's face when she's on the bus. All of yeah, them refusing yes, to stand up. Definitely. So I think that, and also Graham's... I thought the close-up on Graham was perhaps misjudged. Because I thought of all the people you wanted a close-up on in that situation, maybe Graham wasn't the one. But then again, maybe he was, because he was the guy who was conflicted about it the most. But I think that was... that was. I, I, I think there's a lot to do with this where they, they shouldn't have pulled punches. What I love, I love the bad guy, because they didn't pull any punches with that. That He should basically turn around to him and say, it's chemicals in your brain that are doing this job that... It's a shame they didn't get a slightly weightier actor for that. Yeah. Because a lot of the time when he was talking, I just kind of felt I'm not quite believing it. Having said that, because he's a, he was a bit everyman. Yeah, I think that that actually helped with me. The fact that he was anonymous mm. and that he was low key. I don't mean. And, and he was a white supremacist. I don't mean a bigger name. I just mean quite a, well. an actor with a bit more gravity. But I think the lack of. I actually felt the lack of gravity. Because and the fact that they dispatched him quickly, she was dismissive of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh no, that worked. Yeah. But I, I just uh, that was just a brilliant think... scene when he got around her throat. That was mm. that was, and I think excellent. And I... that that is probably where Jodie Whittaker's strength is going to be in those intense and situations. I, she was a lot better this week than last week. Less shouty. Well, less... And it just allowed her to act. And there was, and obviously there was a lot of telling you what's going on. But she wasn't walking you through every single thing this week like she did last no, week. No, there was a, there, there were some moments like when she knocked on the door and said, "Oh, you've won a lottery," and she stood there, and you thought to yourself, "Well, if Matt Smith had been there, he'd have been straight through the front door and mm. being very theatrical and 
taken she's possession more, of the scene. She's a lot more tenant. Yeah. That that yeah. that you've won the lottery scene is basically the idiot's lantern again. Do you remember the idiot's lantern? Doctor and Rose come in, need to see the television. Yeah, that doctor would have probably grabbed hold of one of the companions and got them involved in it as well. And I, I don't know. Yeah, I can see it playing out slightly differently. And she kind of just stood there and used her hands. She did that a lot where she was explaining stuff. She did it in, back in the TARDIS when she was giving the history lesson as well. Her hands were doing the same thing. She was just standing there. There was a slightly silly shot towards the end of them all stood in the TARDIS set facing the camera. Yes. And the, okay, they were looking at the scanner. They were looking at watching television on the scanner. Yeah, that but was... there was a. The the problem is I don't like the TARDIS set. I no, don't like that, that, big, that crystal. big crystal. Yeah, yeah. And they're all stood. It felt like the nineteen sixties again that they were basically stood in the TV studio in a kind of a, the a senior absolute mark. disaster of that shot. Is it's the first time we see the crystal going up and down, and it's a really important speech and moment in the episode. And all ninety five percent of Doctor Who fans are thinking watching it is, oh, so that's how the TARDIS rotor works. But they. Just, but they've spent so long perfecting taking camera thing. shots around yeah. around a TARDIS like set. Rachel Talalay's like mm. sweeping camera, and then have they just like they just messed they've it just up, given this they? given up on it? I mean, it just looked like I don't know. I don't. Know. I I can't tell. I can't even tell if I don't like the set. I think that's probably where the magic just really bus, badly filmed. That's where the magic bus thing came into my head because right. it was. I think we need to see like that, that crystal going up and down at the start of the episode, and that would have got it out of the way. I'm quite, but I'm I think at the start of the episode, <laughs> no, but what, you know what I mean. It's the first time you see the crystal going up and down, you do not want it to be while somebody's saying something really important. I mean, I want to like the set. I want, to, but I can't. But I, I genuinely can't tell if it's just badly, but they've just forgotten how to, or to shoot this. It feels really small. It doesn't feel like it has any kind of space to it. It feels like it wants to be the original Eccleston set. But that's the point. If somebody's done that set already, you don't redo it. You either do the same set or you do something different. But if you try and do the same set but different, you're only going to end up with an inferior copy of the set. You're only going to end up... You know, you're not going to outdo the original because the original. Well, half what... the thing with the Eccleston set was the lighting, wasn't it? The lighting was half of the battle with that set, wasn't it? It had that. It was un... well, it had underlit, that... and mm. there was a lot of green light. And but also that was in the SD soft focus days, mm. and I think that covered up a multitude of sins that you can't get away with now. Well, I love the camera work in the rest of the rest of the episode when it was setting up the low the the the. When it was initially mm. making the the setting, well, there was lots that of was lovely good. stuff. It felt like a. There were times when it felt like a bit like an Oliver Stone film yeah, or something, yeah. with the way. Yeah, he definitely. I there was um, something Chris Chibnall said in Doctor Who magazine in the preview where he said they spoke to, because obviously this was Mark Tondorai again as it was last week, and they said right, let's talk about the grammar of the way you're going to shoot it because we'd like the grammar to be different on the two episodes so that they're distinct. Mm. And obviously they actually sat down, I wouldn't say necessarily particularly looked at Oliver Stone films, but like you were saying about JFK, the there was a moment where the camera comes in as if it's a vehicle 
and then yeah. the vehicle comes in from the side of the camera. Yes. That's just exactly what somebody like Oliver Stone or Michael Mann or somebody would have done. Well, it's a similar shot to, there's one in JFK where it, it points out that the FBI building or the CIA building is on the back of yeah, this yeah. kind of, and it swoops down from the signpost into the street. Yeah, there was a lot but, of that. But then the, the problem is, so the series has also been really good at making the inside of the TARDIS and the scenes inside the TARDIS flow to the yeah. scenes outside so you feel like they have actually arrived and this this space is actually in the police box well and they tried but to hear that this week they but, tried but it? but the but the way it's filmed inside the tardis and the way it's filmed outside inside the tardis it's just really badly filmed and inept and static it's static is yeah and then it cuts mm. to outside when they leave and you just feel like they've gone from cardiff you feel like they've gone from cardiff to well America, because you believe it's America because yeah, of the do. way it's filmed. Yeah. And then when they go back into the TARDIS at the end, you feel like they've just gone back to Cardiff again. It's like that set, sorry. It's like that set hasn't got enough in it to give them anywhere to go with the cameras. No. Well, I mean, there's a, it's just all space. So the camera can move around as much as it wants, but, but, what but is, it doesn't have anything to pick out. So the funny thing is that what is, what is there isn't cohesive. It yeah, does look like a lot of different ideas all in one way. Yeah, crystals don't go with the console. Console doesn't go with the walls. None of it goes with the floor. It doesn't feel like an environment. No. It feels like a set. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it, and it feels for me, to me like a theatre set. It doesn't even feel like a television set. <laughs> television set. No. It feels like, yeah, it could be in television centre. <laughs> it, might, it might get better later in the series if, after we've seen other directors working with that space, because yeah, it's a it is an entirely enclosed set. Mm. It's not a three wall, you know, fourth wall proscenium march set like no. they would have had in the old days. It is an entirely enclosed set that they have to take. They have to take the cameras in through the door to film inside it. Mm. And it's a strange thing where, but we've not just to finish. Sorry, we've not on. seen any of that. We've not seen any indication no. of that yet. Go on. So no, I was going to say we haven't had a period of. of... Jodie being on her own in the TARDIS either. So there's this lack of connection between her and the TARDIS. It feels like she's as much a visitor in that place as they are. Yeah, I suppose it does. It doesn't feel... It didn't... didn't, Yeah, because obviously there's always the joke of you can't control the TARDIS and I thought that was quite nicely done. But yeah, if that's the first time you see her inside the TARDIS Mm. then that's not suggesting she's the driver. No. And that's a standard Doctor Who thing, but it's just you didn't get because previously, with, with with right from William Hartnell in that first episode, you get several minutes of him being the owner of the ship. Yes, and you didn't really get. You got last week at the end just that little bit where she invites them in to take a look, but then you didn't see them do anything when they were there. No, and I think you needed to see them doing something while they were there in order to set up the idea that they've gone into her ship. Um. Martin Luther King. I thought it was nice that they had him in it, mm-hmm. and I thought it was appropriate that they didn't do anything with him; just had him say hello. <laughs> yeah, and because when Ryan I, was saying yeah. Rosa Parks and Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King. King. Oh, yeah, that brilliant. was lovely. Yeah, but I think if you'd have tried to do anything with Martin Luther King, you'd have undermined the story of Rosa Parks. Yeah, but I think if you'd have left him out altogether, you've had the audience saying, "Well, why wasn't he in it?" Yeah, yeah they turned it into a way of building Ryan's character rather than yeah. rather than anything else. 
which is fine. Mm. Yeah, has had a bit more to do this week. She got a bit more... Because last week it kind of felt like all the companion stuff was between Ryan and Graham, and there wasn't an awful lot of that, really. Mm. And Yaz just felt like she was sort of the third broom or whatever you call I think, it. I think each of the characters got a really good share of screen time. Yeah. Show. I like I like the moment where she didn't know where to sit on the bus. Yeah, that so was great. That, that was really good. Mm. Because that that actually did make... But again, it made a point about that particular moment in history, about how it's not just black and white. Mm. That there's something and there's potentially a Trumpish moment where everyone assumes she's Mexican that's, yeah, yeah. that's a possibility and also um, there's it's just a nice foreshadowing of the actual event that the episode is there to yeah you know portray um I was about to say something else then about something and it's completely gone out of my head um I don't want to focus on that song too much but what I would say is a real shame is that Sorry, I can never pronounce his name, the composer. You're, you're really Sagan Akinola. Yeah. Oh, wasn't given the opportunity to do a piece of music for that last piece as opposed to that song. Because that song, that, that's where it felt clumsy. That's where I was pulled out of it. I, th- I think my problem is it's it's saying this is a big episode of Doctor Who. Yes. And I think it is a big episode of Doctor Who. Mm. But I think... It doesn't need it doesn't need the extra bits to reinforce that. It's no, a big episode no. of Doctor Who because it's featuring Rosa Parks. But we it, have said over the last couple of weeks that Doctor Who does look and feel and sound a lot more like regular television. It does. And that's and that, exactly. That was an, it yeah. was an X Factor moment. It was you know when when people have their journey and they get you know and they get their golden buzzer or whatever it is and then all of a sudden. And we had Some it. Some song comes on. In Vincent and the Doctor, with that athlete song, where it was a Richard Curtis script, and you wanted the Richard Curtis moment, and Vincent and the Doctor was there at the end to look mm. and feel and sound like something that came from the pen of the man who wrote, you know, Four Weddings and Not in Hell. tonally it felt better. Yeah. Tonally it felt more... S- I, I don't know, it was subtle, but it just eased you in there, and it, does, it wasn't suddenly, oh... Where the hell does this come from? It kind of worked for me because if you'd have had incidental music rather than a song, you would have expected to hear Mm. the characters talking and to hear the sort of ambient sound. But by bringing a song in, it just left it entirely down to the faces. I'm going to be fascinated to watch this episode again because I heard some really lovely thematic stuff from him earlier in the episode. And if that had come to a crescendo... I, I don't think he would have had any problem at all with coming out with something really quite affecting without it being mm. this. But that's, as, but as then, I say, it's personal taste. But then, and I think probably 75% of the complaints about Murray Gold are when he was called upon to do that. Mm. And if it's from the same guy who's been writing the incidental music through the rest, it doesn't always work. I wasn't thinking you do a need song. something different. I wasn't thinking a song. No, I'm not talking all. about a song. I'm talking about when Murray Gold does the big music at the end of Journey's End as their TARDIS is dragging the earth back. Mm. And you've got that pumping Murray Gold theme yeah, going this on. This stuff's pretty classy. And I'm saying Murray Gold isn't, can't do classy, but it was. Uh, Murray Gold's classy. People forget that because they've heard it for the last 13 years, but. 
Yeah. Okay. I, it's just people have got so used to it. Mm. But I mean, it's Murray Gold was doing the John Williams stuff. Yes. And Sagan Akinola, however you pronounce it. I think it, maybe doing... class is the wrong word. What am I looking? I don't know what I'm looking for really. It just felt. It's it definitely really been a... listening to the West Wing. It's, it's quite filmic. The new guy. Cinematic. Cinematic, yeah. Do you think so? Yeah. More I than think. Murray Gold? Yes, I do. Really? Yes, because I do. his stuff just reminds me of what's going on on Murray Dallas. Gold reminds me of David Arnold's TV stuff. Does it? Mm. Really? Mm. I don't mean that in a negative way. But yeah, but David Arnold... Mm, I can't... I don't see it, it. It feels like John Barry Light. Yeah, but Murray Gold doesn't sound remotely like John Barry. At times, do you think? Yeah, so? I think. Yeah, it, it's like when you hear the new. We're talking about music, so that's it, for it's us. like when so you hear the new James Bond that, themes that are kind of a, um, you know, aping the the John Barry stuff. David Arnold. Yeah, but I don't hear any Bond. of that in Murray Gold. All I hear is John no. Williams. There is a there is moments. So there's moments in things like so I know my Bond, and I know things like um, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. They have that kind of horn shifting into kind of an atonal place. yes yeah and that happened with murray gold quite often particularly with the uh, the john sim master theme mm. that kind of mm. there are two ages of that murray gold more like bernard herman to me <laughs> i mean that's how good murray gold is though because there is a a period up till probably the end of matt smith and then mm. it changes quite dramatically for, yeah for well it changes holiday. Fairly dramatically between Tennant and Smith as well. Mm, mm. He he did. You know, I'm not saying. He, yeah, I'm not saying he reinvented himself enough. a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the way the music's written, Sigan Akinola, the more rhythmic stuff, and the stuff that he was doing this week with uh, horns and what have you. Uh, I don't know if you could have arranged that kind mm. of music into something I think big wa- for the end of the episode. I think you watching and there were some moments though where there was quite melodic stuff going on and it was quite rich. You know, there was quite melodic stuff mm. but it was repeated melodies rather than developing melodies. And I'm saying, if you'd have tried to get a big soundtrack for the end of the piece out of repeating rather than developing melodies, it made have fallen on its face. Okay. And let's, to be honest, he may have done it, and they may have decided to go with the song. I don't know. Yeah. We'll never know. I don't know. I don't know. I think I the song worked. Uh, fine It enough. didn't detract from the emotional response from me. It just made me think, oh, what, what's this average song um, doing in here? And it's... Okay. It felt like, to me, the whole episode felt... And actually, I'm, I'm warming it to it slightly more, because I've just... And I now feel like it's Mallory Blackman writing about her personal experiences through the lens of history and expressing that within a framework that Chibnall's set out, which is this more authentic approach. And it's the director trying to serve Mallory Black- Blackman's attempt to, to, to get this on screen. And so the director is presenting this as a big moment and is trying to present this as a bigger moment, including putting the the, the song mm. over the, the closing titles. Mm. And the the idea that it's actually, it's probably quite a personal episode for Mallory Blackman. It's, it feels a bit like, 
feels a bit like the the short stories and the the extra stories that are written outside of the series, like featuring Matt Smith. So um, is it Jenny Colgan has mm-hmm. written some, and about how they they sort of inject some of these issues and some of these personal experiences into these stories because they couldn't necessarily they're not kind of big enough for the series to hold or they're too serious for the series proper to hold and it's a bit like that but now it's not they're not too serious for the too no. serious for the series to mm. hold because mm. of the way Chipnall's reshaping it mm. the series but, is now Doctor Who is now appropriate for these sorts of personal stories I, to be told I'm imagining when I came here to watch the episode with you my 10 year old daughter just got home and I'm looking forward to talking to her about mm. it yeah, because I think she would have got a lot from it. Hmm. Um, uh, Moffat did annual stories stretched out to forty-five minutes. Now, Chibnall's compressing novels into forty-five, fifty minutes. Essentially, yeah. I think is one way to sort of look at it. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen next week and what but, the rest of the series will be like, but that's what it feels like but, at the moment. But novels written by people who people from backgrounds who haven't written for Doctor Who before. Yeah, and it's, and, that's... and what he's doing is, because in a novel, you've got a plot, but basically the novel is the inner lives of the characters. Mm. And what he's doing is distilling the kind of inner lives of the characters you get in novels into a television script. Mm. And now, yeah, and to me, the guy who wrote United and The Great Train Robbery, this is... And obviously, subject matter is different, but doing history in that way, that seems to me just like the natural way that Chris Chibnall would, because that's what he did in The Great Train Robbery in United. This is, you know, this approach to doing history is probably, if you've seen either of those two things, exactly what you'd have expected from this stretch of Doctor Who. Hmm. Um, And for me, I like, so I like the fact that this, I think this is going to be popular. Yes. And I think this is going to do. This is going to be an important episode for kids, and I think this is going to be an enduring episode for for kids. It's the sort of episode you could show in a school yeah. to children, and I like that. But for me, I've watched a hell of a lot of Oliver Stone. I've I've spent years studying the presentation of history on screen. I, if I'm watching Doctor Who, I want a bit more fun with history. I want a bit more lightness. And well, so, so it's not directed towards me. You'll get that next time, probably. Yeah. What with James the First? <clears throat> no, he's the third history. Well, oh, okay. The oh, you ones. mean partition? Partition. <laughs> you think you think that the partition episode is going to be the light? <laughs> uh, it's the one with the alien monsters in. <laughs> yeah, but it's set. It's oh, set in India during partition. It's going. To be, that, that one's going to be again. I'm not I'm being wholly serious <laughs> no. here, man. Yeah. But again, I'm really excited. That's the idea of setting a Doctor Who episode. Spoilers. During, I've already done the yeah, spoiler. In India during partition is incredibly exciting to me. And I, I imagine that I'll be uncomfortable watching it and I might feel overwhelmed and I'll think that it's directed towards something else. But right now, I'm still feeling excited, even though I'm, I've seen how Chibnall's approaching history. So I can predict how Chibnall's going to approach history. I want to see how he's going to... Or how the writer is going to negotiate it. Well, it's Vinay yeah. Patel, isn't it, doing that one? You've, you've practised names well. <laughs> I haven't practised. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
Any more? Shall we score it? I'm looking forward to learning more. About partition? Or any, any of the stuff that he's touching on, or they're touching on. Well, you'll certainly learn, <laughs> they'll certainly teach you something. Because, yeah. yeah. That's how they're doing it. Yeah. And that's no bad thing, is it? No, no, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just, I appreciate it more than like it. Moment. Yeah, it's that juggling out between feeling entertained and feeling... Yeah. Mm. Lectured. Mm. For want of a better word. Yeah. Because it is, that is what it's doing, really. It managed to do it in a light enough way that it didn't... It didn't quite hammer things down your throat that it could so easily have done, but it came mighty close. Yeah, yeah, but I think it skated an emotive subject... Very, very I think, well. I, I, yeah, it, the, the Doctor Who moments that were in there were really well done. Yeah, there were about a dozen different ways in which this episode could have tripped itself up, mm. and I don't necessarily mean just in presenting something important in a frivolous way. Mm. But there are all sorts of different things in this episode. Uh, it, even there was a there was a joke right at the end, just before the crucial pivotal moment. I can't remember what it was, but there was a. There was a funny moment there, and it did sort of provoke a slight chuckle. Mm. And it just probably leavened it enough that the scene worked, whereas if that joke hadn't been there, it could have been, oh, God, here's two minutes where we have to sit here and watch them recreating something from history and try and do it justice. But by putting the joke in there, suddenly your focus is taken away from whether they do it justice, and you allow them to do it justice because they because they distracted your attention. Mm-hmm. So, and, and there were about a dozen things in the episode where it could have tripped itself up, and on every single one. And I'm not saying it's like the best episode of Doctor Who ever, or that they did a magnificent job on every score, but on every pivotal moment where they could have tripped themselves up they managed to negotiate it in such a way as that they didn't yeah yeah scores then or is there more i trying to wrap well, my brain I, and go I'm back sure through it i'll probably have to score it in about a year because yeah well i'm coming this, this to you after simon yeah. <laughs> i feel like i want to watch it again i came out of it thinking well i don't need to see that one again it's one of those but the more i think about it i think it's going to Get. I tell you, I think no, it's going to get stronger. Uh, the thing I was going to say about fifteen minutes ago and what went out of my head, I didn't think uh, this is something I thought was a little bit disappointing. They didn't do a sympathetic white character. I it crossed my mind and I checked myself, but then I thought, but that's the role of the visitors. Yeah, that's, that's the role that's of what Graham. It is because, Graham, I thought that, rep- because I thought, well, surely not everyone. Graham represents us. Yeah, yeah. but he represents us, he doesn't represent them. And I just felt, you didn't have to be like the good white guy, but I just felt you needed to have a white character who wasn't Mm. as racist as everybody else, essentially. But at the same time, I felt like with a subject like this, that you shouldn't pull your punches, just like they didn't pull punches with the bad guy. Yeah. They shouldn't pull the punches with, with the issue, which was... But, but like I'm saying, if they managed to negotiate everything if, else, they could have put that character in there and negotiated it and got it right. But this is what I was thinking about, the low-keyness of the, of the villain of the piece and the fact that actually he wasn't the villain of the piece. The villain of the piece was the racism. racism. Yeah. And I think 
and it wasn't just the racism; it was the universal racism. Mm. It was the fact mm. that the normality. It was the fact that it was almost it's a normalisation. It was almost like invasion of the body snatchers. Even territory. more strongly relate to what's going on now. Yeah, it's the no- normalisation that is the, yeah, the magic the, word at the moment, yeah, isn't it? That's the danger. Yeah, but I think I think by not putting any sympathy, because I felt the same, and I felt a bit icky thinking thinking that. But I think by not putting a sympathetic white character in you don't neuter that that feeling of that almost that racism is this kind of disease that yeah yeah only the bad people are the racists yeah and that was that was the danger wasn't it yeah that you come out of it thinking oh well it was only the it was only the grumpy ones it was only one the nasty ones who were racist there were nice people then as well which obviously there were but well you wouldn't have had a sort of successful resolution to the boycott no if there hadn't been something there to allow it to happen. But the, the way they got round it slightly is by presenting, we only saw white characters in authority. So we saw a policeman, you saw kind of affluent white characters you who s- would probably have been... Well, white waitress. I mean, yeah. no, I wouldn't have expected the white waitress to be the sympathetic character, but... No, I think what we did. I see wouldn't have wanted to see a sympathetic white character, but but it just felt it should have been represented in somebody who was slightly more neutral. But what I thought was quite clever was uh, I think it was the older couple. I I detected fear from them. Mm. Oh yeah, which yeah, it's all about the perception thing, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose what I'm saying is not necessarily that we didn't see a white character who was sympathetic, but that we weren't. We didn't see quite because it felt like a slow episode as well, even across its fifty minutes. Actually, Simon, sorry, I was just going to say maybe it was because we didn't we didn't have chance to have a situation where we'd meet a white character who wasn't in a position where they were having to be racist, essentially. Because every time we met a white character, the scene demanded of them that racism. It was oddly what Simon's just said made me realise. That actually, it's different sorts of inspiration for racism. So you got the bus driver who was racist through kind of job jobs jobs worth. Yeah. You had the police officer who's racist as a kind of a slight power trip. You had fear causing racism. You had anger causing racism, which was the, the waitress. First, is the first one. The waitress the is yeah, because she's never known a black person in the restaurant, so it freaks yeah. her out. So the white characters in it were a way to. To kind of illustrate illustrate the kind of the nuances behind racism, and how racism is kind of a normalised. So every situation you're in, racism rears its head because it rears its head in every situation. And it's it's also racism isn't isn't an emotion. It isn't an attitude. It's the end result of a variety of emotions and a variety of attitudes. And that made an interesting it's, point. It's all down to how the individual controls our own insecurities. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Which was a really smart thing, but I still, I'm still going to give it a seven. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to I'm have to spend a year thinking about it. And I'm sure there's more to it. And I, I, really, like, I really like the fact that it exists. And I really like the fact that Mallory Blackman has had an opportunity to write a Doctor Who story that I don't think anybody else has written before and that it's I think it's I think it's a 
personal thing. Well, I'm curious to know, did Chris Chibnall come to her and say, we want somebody to do Rosa Parks, will you do it? Or did Chris Chibnall come to her and say, would you like to write Doctor Who? What story would you like to tell? And she say Rosa Parks. Because in none of the pre-publicity have either of them said which one of the two it was who suggested it. And there are, there are a couple of hints that it could be either way around. From the way they've been talking about it, she's talked about it as if it was her idea and as if it was his. And he's talked about it as if it was her idea and as if it was his. It's, uh, maybe there'll be an interview next month or something where they'll say, but it just seems... It might have. It might be as simple as an evolving idea through a conversation. But one of them must have something. brought the name up in the first place. Mm. And well, and, but because but, that's quite a big name to bring up. Mm which maybe suggests that she would have brought that name up rather than him because that's because if I don't know it just seems that if a white guy comes to you and says will you tell the story of Rosa Parks in my program you know and obviously that wouldn't be how the conversation went but that might be the kind of thing that might make you go really whereas if the guy comes and says, will you write an episode of our programme? What story would you like to tell with mm. the whole of history mm. at your disposal? Mm. Then this would be the obvious answer, maybe. So, I don't know. It just it just seems to me that it feels more appropriate and natural that it's that way around. And I bet you find out next month in Doctor Who magazine that it was the other way around. I suspect you'll never find out. Maybe. I think it's going to be... Um... I think that I think the na- the nature of so in the last issue of Doctor Who magazine it said something interesting about the way the writers are working. So when it's obviously when it's a Chibnall episode, it's a Chibnall episode. Mm. When it's a Mallory Blackman episode, then it's a guest writer. So there isn't this writers' room. But for instance, next week's episode isn't a guest writer, so it's going to be this writers' room approach. But it's Chibnall next week, where it's storylines. I think they're story and they're storylines through. This is what the magazine was saying. Oh, really? They're storylines through, through this writers' room. Okay. And then it's kind of not written collaboratively, but like in America, one he person, writes. one person obviously reaches reaches a sort of a, a point where they've but done it's just more his name on it. So possibly mm. then this is this is where his. It'd be interesting to see from. more after after the ten episodes have gone out. We we'll get a much better idea of how it's all worked. Won't yeah. We? Yeah. yeah, you want to give a score then, Simon? Yeah, I um, oh, I forgot to say that I adored the title. The fact they just took Rose changed one of the letters, Rosa, which is lovely, lovely in joke. Um, but it's, <laughs> um, I I just think it was, I I, oh, I just feel it's too important for them to not pull any punches. And as you said, it was a balancing act and the fact it could have fallen flat on its arse. And the song nearly did that. (laughs) The song nearly cheapened it for me, but I think it was too important. And there was was such a lack of pulling punches with this that I think it's too important. And I think as time goes on, it's going to become stronger in people's minds and in their memories in much the same way as Vincent the Doctor. And I think in some respects, this was more successful than that. Because it didn't have a big chicken in it, um, which you know kind of destroyed that story to a degree for me because it didn't feel like that fitted in. It was it was kind of I liked no I liked it. 
Yeah. As a metaphor. As a that metaphor chicken was for... there as a big symbolic yeah. invisible chicken, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I yeah. That 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 episode has never as much as I relate and um have that emotional response to that that episode, it still feels like there's a big section of that that doesn't quite work for me. Whereas this I think all worked. Apart from the song. But in that respect, I want to give it a nine out of ten. Okay. Because but because I think it's too important to I don't want to I don't know. Give it a usual I, <laughs> I felt more relief than than anything. Yeah, yeah, I think it is, an, it is an important I, it is an important story, but I think they negotiated it safely. But if yeah. you watch it again, it won't be relief anymore because you'll know what it is. So you'll yeah. be able to just enjoy yeah, but I'm, the episode I'm for what it is. I worried that I might be just bored by the episode. No, then. I just think it's audacious. It's another one of those audacious yeah. episodes that that could so easily not exist because they skirt around it and think we're not going to touch that. Whoa. But they did it and they did it with balls. And I think it's really good. I think they did it. They did it in a slightly overly... I don't know. I don't know. I it didn't it feel, it didn't feel audacious to me. It felt like an audacious thing to do. Or do you feel it, it was didn't polite? feel like it was presented audaciously. It felt... But that's a good thing, surely. Yeah, then you're back to the the lecturing thing, and then the, and, and you've you've got children watching this as well, and the whole family know, sitting together. I don't know whether it. in years to come, we'll I'll look back and think this was a big pivotal moment in Doctor Who, as I should be thinking because of the subject matter. I'll be thinking, well, this is well, when they, they this is they, when don't they take did, this the wrong way. The balls to Doctor Who, um, yeah, and if it advertises kind of, itself, it's, it's pivotal or a pivotal piece of television. On. Or, okay, you know, you know, I'm not just talking about it as a Doctor Who episode. But I think it might be pivotal in people's minds. I think my daughter will watch it and find it as a pivotal thing because all of a sudden she'll understand about Rosa Parks and think, oh, that's what it was all about. I remember that episode of Doctor Who. Yeah. So in that respect, it's important. Yeah. So but the same, I, I appreciate what you're saying. But the same as when Sam Beckett leapt into, yeah. leapt into X... And I don't remember those very clearly. Okay, and they, it, they haven't turned out to be big moments in television, but they're presenting big moments. He, so in, he did in a way, it sort week. of belittled. He did. But he didn't leap into real people. So there were a few episodes where he leapt into real, real people each week. So when he leapt into Lee Harvey Oswald, that kind, that kind of belittled that story slightly because it made mm. a quantum leap story out of... The JFK I'm not saying that this episode did anything that other TV about this subject has, mm. hasn't done before. Yeah. But it, I do think back to that Star Trek episode with the, in, the first interracial kiss. Right. And that was a little moment in a in a TV program. Mm. And that wasn't about Star Trek. That was about... I know people say, oh, that's how important Star Trek is because it had the first interracial kiss. No, it's, it was an imp- as you say, it's an important yeah. piece of television. It's, it's so second, it doesn't matter about the vehicle. It's the second interracial kiss. But the first one was on British television. Oh, was play. it? Yeah. Okay. This, that's one of those... It was the first one in America, Matt. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. But... Um, Sorry. I don't, I don't, no, no. I just think it would be important to... To viewers, yeah. Well, I hope that's what I'm hoping. So that's this the sort of what, television we should. This be is what I, I'd like to look back at it in a year's time, two years' time, mm. and see how I feel about it and mm. how it exists in the public consciousness. Because if it has just vanished, mm. then it's an important story told, 
and then banished. And that's possibly worse but, uh, than... Again, the, the balancing act it was doing, though, was telling the important story, but also the mm. sci-fi element, yeah. I thought, worked really well as well. Mm. Which is where I didn't feel the same with Vincent the Doctor. Yeah. And I thought it was a bit clunky, so I'm giving it an 8, because there was an improvement over the last two. Okay. But it wasn't classic Doctor Who the way I like it. No. <clears throat> I like it when it's light enough on its feet that you don't get the clunky moments, mm. I guess. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round. Um, should we do some other stuff then before we disappear? Okay. Um, well, I've got a whole host of films that I've had for review, so I'll very briefly go through a few of those. And as we go through those, because there's nine of them, so I'm not going to do nine in a row, we will throw the table open to what else people have been seeing at the pictures or uh, on television, maybe. But, uh, oh, okay, the first one since the last time I talked about films is a horror film called He's Out There, which is about as generic as horror films get. Uh, It's about a woman with her two daughters who go to a cabin in the woods and the husband gets delayed because he's got a meeting at work and as they arrive at the cabin in the woods they discover it's a house that used to be owned by this family whose son went mad and ran off. So you know absolutely that the son who went mad and ran off is living in the woods and as soon as he sees somebody's moved into his house he's going to be pissed off about it and come and get them. And that's exactly what happens. But... As these things go for a cheap horror film, it's actually rather nicely made and rather nicely shot and rather well acted and kind of works rather better than a lot of them do. So it wasn't too bad. Um, Released on Blu-ray just recently in Australia, but it's region free, so you can import it, although it's rather expensive, is Alex Proyas of The Crow, Dark City, iRobot, his first film which was like a 16mm really cheap film that they made just by literally driving out into the desert and doing a post-apocalypse thing. The characters in it have all gone mad. And the entire thing is just one non-sequitorial conversation after another and one over-the-top performance after another. And it does eventually settle into having a narrative but for a film that's an hour and a half long it's half an hour too long and it needed to do something different in the middle because you just kind of sit and watch the same thing happening over and over for the first 60 minutes before it gets anywhere having said that for something that was shot on 16 mil on a minuscule budget it looks spectacularly good it's got a real eye for uh, visuals and the music as well, is quite interesting, although again, very repetitive and could have done with a bit more variation. But if you like Alex Proyas, and this film's got a bit of a cult following, the Blu-ray edition of it is something that is well worth getting. Um, that's called Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds. Um, oh, and also a Spanish war film called Rescue Under Fire. Now, Spain is very anti-military. Something like only I was doing a bit of research and something like only 16% of the Spanish population feel comfortable with the fact that they actually have a military. 
So to get a Spanish war film is quite an odd thing. Having said that, it's a Spanish war film. It's about a um, it's about a um, military um, medical helicopter. It's a true story. The medical helicopter goes into a situation because it's, I suppose, the closest one to the incident where a couple of American soldiers are wounded and needed pulling out. Um, but the guy who's there in charge of the operation, um, he's one of these guys who's living under the shadow of his father, who was quite a military legend, and um, he makes a wrong decision. The helicopter essentially crashes, and then they've got to decide whether they blow it up and get the hell out of there quick, writing off uh, God knows how many million pounds worth of Spanish money and blowing up a helicopter that the military can never afford to replace, or whether they sit on the helicopter overnight, this is Afghanistan, and hope the insurgents don't come, and they can pick it up in the morning, by which time they've managed to secure a big enough helicopter to pick it up. So it's about the overnight and the insurgents arriving. It's not got as much fighting in it as you might expect, but it's mostly centred around the doctors, and actually, as these things go... It's a well-told story across 90 minutes and the director does a decent enough job. He's actually, this is his first time directing, but most of the stuff he's done previously has been on big American movies. So he knows this stuff and he does a decent enough job. Matt, tell me about something you've been watching lately before I do another tranche of three. Um, I've just, I've just managed to get to The Haunting of Hill House. All ten episodes? All ten episodes, yes. And that's very good. So this is obviously TV. This is, um, is it on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Um, And it's another version of the 1940s novel that was, they made a 1960 movie, which was Robert Wise, I think. No, no, you're you're confusing two things here. Am I? Yeah. Oh, no, no. no, The Haunt. Well. So it is. So the the original novel was. Yes. The Haunting haunting of Hill House. Well, well, I was trying to unpick the confusion because it's been made twice as just The Haunting. Yes. But it's also been made as The Haunting of Hill House twice as well, I think. No, that's a different story, though. That is a different story. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So So there's the House house on Haunted Hill. Oh, the House on Haunted Hill. It's the film that um, that isn't anything to do with The Haunting of Hill House. Right. Confusingly, yes, that's but the, the film's called The Haunted. The remake in the nineties is called The Haunted. The Haunting. The Haunting. Yes. Um, and so this is a this is a version. It's it's got elements from the original from the nineteen sixties film, but it stretches this over ten episodes. Um, it's set in two time periods. Uh, so a family moves into the house in order to redevelop it. Um, two parents and five children, um, and then. It's set in the, that's in the 90s. And then there's the other half set in the present day where the children have grown up and they're kind of dealing with the fallout of whatever happened when the family lived in it. And it flashes back and forth between the two time periods. So they're not doing it as the investigation, like in the... No, no. no. So no. It's, it's differently... It's more about a family than... And there's a slight Doctor Who connection in that the guy who's written and directed it is the guy who wrote and directed Oculus, which yes. stars Amy Gillan. Yeah. Amy yeah. Gillan. Karen Gillan. Amy Pond. And, the, and the I, I, there are lines in it that, that do seem to connect to Doctor Who. So there's a line that says we're all stories in the end. No, and really? I don't know, no. but what I'm hesitant on is whether that was a quote that Stephen Moffat made from somewhere else. But that's definitely, yeah, a prominent Stephen Moffat quote. Um, and there are... 
there are moments with moving statues that have very sort of weeping angels feel to it. Um, Although that actually is in the 1963 film as well. It is. To a degree. It is, but the way it's presented here yeah. is, is sort of very, very kind of moffety. Um, so the type of horror it's got... Maybe uh, that's the reason he did it, because it came out, the, the original film came out, I think, if I remember rightly, a month before the very first episode of Doctor Who. Uh, 1960, I think, was the original 63. film. I think it was 60. No, I reviewed I it recently. I had really? to do loads of research on Wiki. Okay, maybe so. Um, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it came so out. So the, the, horror, the horror in the series, it's a lot of jump scares, um, but they're kind of, it's not just just jump scares. So there's a lot of sort of very carefully constructed ghosts in it, very eerie, eerie moments. Um and there's also a lot of sort of narrative twists where you're not sure what you're seeing, whether you're seeing ghosts or reality or dreams or reality. Um, and also the way that the past is revealed, the way the 90s sequences are re- revealed are out of uh, disjointed. So you see moments from one character's perspective and then another character's perspective. And so through the 10 episodes, the truth is kind of pieced together but quite coherently, so you never kind of lose your way because the the modern the modern part of the narrative is them kind of trying to understand and trying not to remember, but being forced to remember at the same time. It's just really well made. It's, it's the sort of television series you watch and you suddenly realise what television series can do these days mm. when they're released all at the same time. And it's just, yeah. There's a second series planned and I'm not quite sure. <laughs> what they're going to do the haunting on, won't be quite the house good. on the haunted hill well yeah yeah so so I watched that and I watched the uh, the second season of The Exorcist as well the television series um, and the first season was really good and played on The Exorcist obviously but also Rosemary's Baby and Satanic Conspiracies the second series had bits of Rosemary's Baby but added bits of The Shining as well and wasn't quite as good so no. that was a bit disappointing Okay, something. Mm. Um, I've watched a really good, or at least two. Well, I've watched two out of three of a really good documentary series on BBC Four called "How Dance Music Conquered the World," which is right up my street, and it goes right back to the seventies where disco music first started. I thought you were going to do the children's film. Oh no, well, I, I didn't watch all of it, but oh, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll mention I'll mention that because I'll come back to that another. Because <laughs> we're supposed to be doing sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Here. Oh, yeah, but I. I just think it's interesting. Um, how it touches and things. But that's really good, and that's all on the BBC iPlayer, and that goes uh, through the history of disco and dance, uh, all through the electronic stuff, craft work, and that. So that does, you know, it touches on the radiophonic workshop and things like that, as it would. Um, and then it goes on to DJs, and I learned something about DJs that they've actually got some talent, which was interesting. And um, sure, well, they weren't well. making that bit up. Maybe this is where the fantasy. Oh, stuff yeah, I've learned in. something about you know, as as my friend Timo Peach said the other day, the best DJs were lightning rods for talent. Because I always used to say I don't really understand what their talent is because they're playing other people's records. Surely, the people making the records are the ones with talent. He said the best people are like lightning rods, where they get the best stuff through, and then that releases it out. To mm. it's really interesting. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about. Uh, was that my other favourite podcast, The Bestseller Experiment, uh, the other day uh, one of the presenters mentioned that one of his friends is one of the writers, female writers, for the new series of Doctor Who. 
and she's going to appear on the bestseller experiment, but only once her episode oh. appears. So she'll be on it tomorrow? I don't know. No, no, it's not that one. <laughs> Fair I, w- I won't mention it because because in the back of my mind, I, I want to have a chat with the presenter and see if he can have a sly word for us to get hold of her. No, it doesn't work like that. Doesn't it? No, I don't. Well, no, I, well, who knows? You never know. Okay, whatever. Well, she might want to appear on a Doctor Who podcast. Maybe. All right. Well, this coming was, soon to a Blue Box podcast near you. <laughs> but no, it's interesting. Gonna... Listening to, uh, obviously, the bestseller experiment talks to loads of writers, but the amount of writers that they talk to who mention Doctor Who is quite incredible. Mm. Mm. It's very popular. And mm. um, it's something that everybody grows up with, mm. whether they watch it or not. They and grow it's also up a with it being around. Writ- written by lots of writers. It's not like a series written by one one person or a writer's room. It's kind of an author's, mm. it's kind of a writer's series, really, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Right, okay, I'll shoot through some more films. Down a Dark Hall, another cheap horror film. Actually, not as cheap. A slightly more expensive horror film. It's got Violet Beauregard from Tim Burton's um, Willy Wonka film in the lead role. Obviously, she's a She's playing a teenager in this now. She plays a girl well, from Bridge Bridge to Terabithia as well. Yes, Bongo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't remember her name. She's really good. She's really good in this. She plays a girl who's gone on the wrong side of the tracks, gets sent off to boarding school, which is this huge mansion, absolutely in the middle of nowhere. It was filmed in Spain, and um, it turns out there's only four other students, and the school is run by Uma Thurman, doing a French accent. That is something really special that needs to be seen, not for any particularly good reason either. Um, but and this is the thing: you kind of they move into this big house in the country, and you're kind of expecting either ghosts or else one of the teachers is going to turn out to be this lad axe man or something along those lines. And then these five girls. Actually, four of them, and one of them is kind of left out, which is kind of a bit of a loophole in the logic of the plot. But four of these girls get specialised into particular instructions, like maths and fine art and music. Oh, and literature is the other one. And the one we follow is the music one. So there's some great musical sequences where she starts playing the piano like she's been possessed by the ghost Possibly of somebody who was going to be a prodigy on the piano and died before he had the chance to become the prodigy. So maybe there's something completely unexpected in a horror film going on in this one. And it was quite interesting. It's not the best film that's ever been made, by any stretch of the imagination. But if you like horror films that go off on a bit of an odd tangent, this one certainly does. Uh, What else have I got on this list? Oh, Prehysteria. From 93 in America. It was big thing in America. Two sequels. They're one of the cheapest, cheesiest, lousiest things I've ever seen, to be honest with you. <laughs> Completely lost in another decade. Not even the 1990s when it was made. But it's about a boy and his sister and their father. He's just become a widower. And the girl who works in the shop where it all happens fancies him. So there's that backstory going on. But the guy that she works for is this really hideous bloke who runs this museum who's like Belloc in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I guess. 
he goes off and he finds or steals five dinosaur eggs, brings them back and they hatch out. And apparently it's something to do with Darwinism, but because they've been kept frozen on ice for 65 million years, when the dinosaurs hatch out, they hatch out A, fully grown, but B, only six inches tall. So it's about five tiny dinosaurs and the wacky adventures they have with this family as this bloke gets together with this woman and they finally see off the guy who wants his eggs back. Absolutely. So sound like Bigfoot and Hansons. <clears throat> Probably a lot worse. Oh, I just mentioned, uh, I went to see Elton Tanning Jones's uh, The Time You were going to get another chance. I'm doing one more film, oh, on then. then there's another break. Oh, is there? Yeah. All right, go on. And then, then I'm back out to you go two. On, okay, because I've got nine, so I'm going to do three, three, three. Blimey. <laughs> <clears throat> the Hatred. One more horror film, another cheap horror film. Yeah. It's this is about it's called The Hatred because it's about the ghost of a Nazi war criminal who came across to America and lived as an Amish, so got away with being a Nazi war criminal. But you get like a twenty, twenty five minute prologue at the start of the film, and then the rest of the film is only about another fifty or sixty minutes. So the prologue completely unbalances it. And then after you get through the prologue, which is about this Nazi living as an Amish and how cruel he is to his family and all this kind of stuff, then all of a sudden it's four teenage California schoolgirls babysitting in their teacher's new house, which happens to be where the Nazi used to live, over the course of a night. And it just completely dissolves into not being any good at all. I mean, the four girls are relatively likeable, if you can get past the personalities, maybe. I don't know. It was just... The first 25 minutes was okay. The rest of it let it down. Simon, tell yes. me about Elton Town and Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I went to see The Time Machine for the second time. Uh-huh. Um, because I travelled to see it the first time, not thinking it was going to come anywhere near us, and then it appeared in, in Timbuth. So uh, nipped across the sort of the second time, even better the second time. Everyone should go and see it if they get the chance. I don't know how much is left of the tour, but it was just a stunning piece of one-man theatre. Right, so say again what it is, and not just the name of it. But... Oh, it's it's a, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, one-man show, uh, who obviously appears as the time traveller. I'm not going to say any more than that. but So he essentially very... narrates his own adventures. He does. Yeah. He does. Um yeah, there's a bit more going on than that, and the lighting and the the the, the, the performance itself it makes it very very special. The sound design, the light design, is all really really good. Um, I think it's about an hour and a half long, one man on stage, and just quite quite incredible performance. Very intense, loads of energy, um, and very cleverly touches on. Fun enough, like tonight's episode of Doctor Who touches on. Stuff going on now makes you think, and uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Okay. And before you go, yes, <laughs> do you want to just say a little bit about that children's film? Uh, no, Malone. That's appeared on Netflix. Go on. What I saw of it, it looked okay. It was a little derivative of a lot of other stuff, like going on, like Coraline and Little Prince, and so uh, give us a basic gen of what it's about oh god from what i saw because i was kind of looking over my daughter's shoulder while oh, she was okay. watching it uh it's uh, a young girl is moving to a new house with her mother mm. new town new school all that stuff 
trying to find her feet and they move into a an old dilapidated house that inside one of the best things is it animation it's animation 3d animation yeah cgi right. Mm. and uh, they walk in the door and it's got there's a load of garden gnomes in the house which is quite nicely creepy at the start um and then she discovers secret passages and finds this gem which is obviously good? has a power it, it looks yeah. all right it looks yeah. all right as i say quite derivative and i was thinking oh that's a bit you know I've d- derivative doesn't bother me no I I want a story that's well told or that engages me. I don't care whether between, I've seen it before. Relationships between the characters are really good. Yeah, that's and the important stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, it looks imaginative in those, you know, in in the other ideas that it's got. And I'm probably going to make a point of sitting down and watching it properly. Hmm. Matt, John Carpenter box. I had the John Carpenter first, so I had four. The it's There's a, a new box set. Out, it's a new yeah. box set from Studio Canal. And it's here. It's called John Carpenter Classics, which is four of his 1980s movies. So it's a, so uh, not Halloween. So it's not Assault on Precinct so it's, 13. It's not Halloween. Assault on Precinct 13. It's not really his classic. It's uh, not even the thing. It's not the thing. Um, so the, the probably the most well known is Escape from New York, but for me that's the, also one of the the least interesting. I mean, they're all dystopian. So there's the fog. Is the first one that is released, which is a very minor ghost story that he completed and then discovered that it really needed more gore and stabbing in it because that's what people wanted. And so went back and added more gore and stabbing to it. So you end up with a film that could be quite a sort of a low-key but creepy ghost story, but moves between a creepy low-key ghost story and a John Carpenter stabathon, And it doesn't work as either and doesn't really have much weight behind it. And then there are three films that kind of connect together. There's um, Escape from New York, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. And they're all kind of sort of anti-Reagan reactionary dystopian thrillers, particularly Escape from New York, which is set in the future. Um, But that's more of an action adventure. For me, Prince of Darkness is the best on the box set. It's slightly underrated, but I think it's as a cult, as a regarded as a cult classic, it's slowly increasing in, in views. Very sort of Quatermassy, very Nigel Neal. A team of scientists discover a mysterious substance in the basement of a church in America, and they go to investigate it um, to look at its atomic structure. And they discover that it's got weird, weird sort of qualities. And then finally they discover it's actually the embodiment of Satan. Um, and Satan's coming through the, through the mirrors, basically. Hence Prince um, of Darkness. Hence Prince of Darkness. It's really well shot. Um, it's got great sort of dream sequences um, where um, John Carpenter filmed... He filmed television screens showing showing this this kind of object and and framed it as kind of this vision from the future being beamed into these people's brains um and it's very very eerie it's really sort of weird and strange it's got donald uh donald pleasance in it so it's got to be good um and then they live which is a kind of a straightforward satire but more comedic um yeah. so yeah it's good but i just buy prince of darkness on its own and and just have that 
I think. And most people would have thought Escape from New York on his own. I didn't have it. I don't have it. You should get it then. I should. Okay, quickly, three more. The Immortal Wars, which is uh, dirt cheap. Well, it's supposed to be a comic book adaptation, but the director is adapting his own comic book that I doubt anybody would ever have heard of. And um, it's about... Oh, it's, it's essentially the Hunger Games, slightly crossed with Fantastic Four. Slightly in the future, people have started to mutate. The mutated, the mutated humans are called Deviants. They've been outlawed, essentially, so they're all kept in prison. And um, Eric Roberts plays a... A TV magnate who uh, televises the Immortal Wars, which is where they set the deviants to fight each other to the death. It is one of those films where they obviously didn't have enough money for X or Y or Z, and everything in the film is a compromise. So the boardroom scenes where Eric Roberts' character is talking to you know, the rest of the board with representatives from all across the world is essentially an entirely pitch black room where they've just put in an occasional neon light so that there's something on the screen, but the neon lights don't actually light anything up. So all you see in these sequences are occasionally people's knees or occasionally the shadows of people, the silhouettes of people walking in front of the neon lights. Really all you can see is a black screen with the occasional blob of blue. And another compromise, for example, is that Eric Roberts patently didn't turn up for some of the day's work, so they've got him walking around in silhouette himself for about half the film. But then, about halfway through the film, he just suddenly walks into the middle of a shot where nothing particularly dramatic's happening. So it's not like it's been done deliberately for the big reveal. So instead, they've just put a body double in from him and dubbed his voice on afterwards. It's that kind of film. It's like that all the way through, and it was just shocking. Um, oh, The Littlest Reindeer, which is out soon, which is um, not based on any of the books called The Littlest Reindeer. It's a Canadian animation, kids' animation, not a very expensive one. It's a fairly standard story, very derivative, but it's quite nicely done, and the characters are... One of them's, um, what's she called, Morena Baccarat from um, Serenity and Firefly. Okay. And um, John Cleese has a small part in it. So it's got a few names in it. Um, it's it's done nicely. It's not terrifically well animated. And some of the character movements aren't terribly good. But it's done nicely enough that it will engage your kids. And it's probably just about enough in there to make it palatable to grown-ups too. And finally, Daisies, which comes from the Czech New Wave... Sorry, I love I love daisies. Okay, you talk about daisies then. Um, it's been well, it's been a while. It's it's one of the it's Czech New Wave, and it's mm-hmm. an important film. Um, it's, it's a year before the Fireman's Ball. Yeah, um, but it's it's got it's got no coherence at all. No. So it's a kind of a stream of consciousness. Well, it's sort to, of there's to, a sort of narrative there, isn't there? Very loose. It's got a sort of narrative of destruction. So the the, the point is, they just so it's it's about two two girls. You go. Yeah, it's about two girls who share an apartment, but you never learn anything about them. And essentially, every shot, every scene, every sequence is just completely. Well, I'm going to use the word again, non sequitur in terms of not just of the picture, but also of the color and of the sound 
and of the dialogue and of the action and everything. So it's 76 minutes, which, until you sort of sit down and watch it, just feels like it's 76 minutes of completely random shots of these two girls almost. But there is a sort of a narrative. They prey on older rich men. One of them will seduce the guy. He'll invite her out for dinner. And then during the course of the dinner, the other one will turn up, sit down at the table, and they'll both get a free meal out of it. At which point, the one who's turned up makes an absolute fool out of everybody. And the girl, the guy goes running off with his tail between his legs, essentially. Mm. Which is a commentary on politics in Czechoslovakia in 1966. And then at the end of the film, much like the fireman's ball, there's the bit at the end where there's the big feast for the government officials that the girls absolutely derail. Yeah, it's a massive food fight. Yeah, basically. Yes, it dissolves into a (laughs) food fight. It's quite sort of... One of the words I read when I was doing the research after I'd written the review was like, somebody described it as a punk poem. And it's as much like Jubilee, say, as it is like um, the Fireman's Ball or something like that. So it's kind of... It um, predicts the the um, Prague Spring yeah. of 1968. Almost predicts exactly what's going to happen. The way the Communist Party rises and then falls away again sort of immediately afterwards and all the political shenanigans. They're almost, it's almost as if they've put it on screen two years before it happened. Well, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's part of the cultural movement that, that caused the, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why it's an important film. And also it's a female director. But it, that's, yeah, that yeah. It's, it's got this, this kind of triple whammy. Of but what being, I mean is the end of the film kind of predicts the way it yeah. ends as well, which yeah. is kind of the yeah. prescient thing about it. Yeah. And it doesn't... And actually, it's supposed to be making heroes out of the... Well, it's not making heroes out of the anti-authoritarian ones because it presents them as not having an alternative. But it's at that time... It's, sorry. It's at that time of of Czech filmmaking where they weren't allowed to make serious political films. So they managed to make serious political films disguised as completely anarchic, frivolous food fights. So a food fight in a film suddenly becomes much more than the food fight. It's a director's statement against the communist regime. It's a symbol of uprising. Yeah. So you're watching these things, and however difficult it is to watch, you're aware of this kind of weight of of history behind it. I have to say, I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say with all honesty that it's a very good film. But it's but it's important and it is very striking. It's, I didn't get swept away by iconic, but it more was, than it is. Yeah, yeah, it's an important film. Mm. It's not something that you could just sit down and enjoy yourself watching by any stretch of the imagination. Unlike the Fireman's Ball, which I think you can. Yeah, the Fireman's Ball is more of a black comedy, really. Yeah. Anyway, that was the last one on my list. Oh, just very quickly, I what I did watch most of today. Yeah, which you're saying about substandard animation if you're looking for some of the best animation you'll ever see on screen is Kubo and the Two Strings have you ever seen that I've heard good things about it yeah it's a gorgeous gorgeous film gorgeous film what is it stop motion um, uh, uh, kind of a 
legend type thing tells a story. It's a bit. Is it really, new? Kind of relates to Coco. No, was it about three, four years ago now? Yeah. yeah. But it kind of is similar to Coco in a lot of its themes. Um, but it's essentially set in Japan um, a long time ago. A boy who plays uh, his uh, guitar or whatever you call musical it musical instrument. Musical yeah. instrument. I don't know what the exact term for it is. Uh, but he tells stories with his music, and that makes these origami shapes come to life and tell stories. And he tells stories, and that's how he earns money. But uh, there's a, a big attack on the village, and he loses an eye, and he loses his father, and and his mother gets injured and becomes depressed. So he's he's looking to go on his voyage, go on his journey, hero's journey, and find his way and try and find his father and, and try and bring the village back together again. I won't say any more than that, but it is just absolutely gorgeous. The, the puppets you, you just you watch it and you think is this actually stop motion animation or is it CGI but it is stop motion wow. mm. unlike the Lego movie right and we'll call it a halt on that next week we'll be back to talk about um, spiders yeah I guess we will be back to talk about spiders won't we spiders vicious <clears throat> but until then I was JR I was Simon. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon.